0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never gonna succeed. You were never gonna have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare, or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward.
1: There you go. (laughs) The admiral was explaining um, his uh, SEAL seal team training when he was um, just a cadet, 35, I think, 35, 36 years prior to that address this last uh, month. You are going to be a sugar cookie, and you will never know why. That does not make a good Hallmark card. (laughs) It doesn't. So that's not a happy thought. Uh, I would tell you, though, that that principle does make its way into the books of wisdom in our Bibles. The the middle of your Bible is filled with books of poetry. They're also known as books of wisdom, and we're looking at one um, for the summer called Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at chapters 3 through 5 today. Now, if you remember from last week, the writer, the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, who was quite probably the wisest, wealthiest, and most powerful individual in the ancient Near East at that time. And he used all of his assets, he exhausted all of his assets and attributes to find if there was a meaning and purpose, like ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose in life. And he did that in the first two chapters, assuming that uh, there was no spiritual dimension in the world. There was no soul in his body and there was no God in the universe. And he pursued in the acquisition of many things, the acquisition of, of information, of pleasures, of stuff, of, of just good hard labor. And in all of that, It came up empty, and this is his conclusions up on the screen, chapter 2, verse 10 says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all the labor, and this is what was the reward for all of my toil. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. There was something missing. He couldn't find what he was looking for. And that is, that is the haunting of all of mankind. There's an in- today we're going to look at how, why is, the big question why, today we're going to look at why is there an inner longing in our souls that will not be quenched in this lifetime? And then two, how can we live with that? Why is there an inner longing that won't be fulfilled? And then how do we live with that loss? It is as though the universe has played a joke on us saying that we have to come to some kind of costume party and mankind dresses up as a clown and the rest of the universe says, "Huh, You look goofy. And now we all stand around looking very self-conscious, wondering what are we doing here? We seem to be out of place. In summary, let me say that last week we looked at the first two chapters of, of life without God, and that is pointless or in despair. And this one, is, this, these chapters that are coming is going to be focusing on life with God, but it is exceptionally confusing. If you think that you get um, the God card in your life and now believe that everything's going to work out or you'll understand how everything works out, then you need to just live longer or think deeper Or maybe just read this book called Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the perplexities of life and how they don't add up. Now, today we're going to cover a lot of ground. I just want to apologize ahead of time. I'm going to be going fast. So hang in there. If you kind of just start fading off, just shake your head, you know, slap yourself out of it or elbow the person next to you, and we'll keep moving on. Thank you. um, Solomon is going to be boldly arguing um, that every action in the universe and in your particular life has a meaning and purpose towards this beautiful plan that he's, that he's making come into uh, in existence, but we cannot embrace that plan, and that leaves us uh, at least exasperated. He's going to say that there's this spectacular, fabulous picture that God is painting And we can't see it clearly. And we never will in this lifetime. And we may never see it in the next lifetime in its totality. We are still finite beings. And how do we live this life with that truth? Let's start with this idea that God has a beautiful plan. God has a beautiful plan. We're in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. And the first verse summarizes that God has a beautiful plan. And then 1 through 10 is going to go through details that you might be familiar with. Um, uh, extremes, one and the other is 28 times. He's going to use the word time because there'll be 14 couplets of opposites about how God is in charge of this beautiful, magnificent, spectacular plan, every detail of it. Okay, let's let's see that. It'll start in verse 1. That'll be up on the screen. I'll summarize the rest. You might be familiar with it. But he says, there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, verse 2. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to search, a time to give up searching. A time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate. There's a time for war, there's a time for peace. All inclusive, every aspect of individual lives and collective wholes of the entire universe from beginning to end is summarized in one of what could be certainly the top 50 verses in all of the Bible. Chapter 3, verse, of 11, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes, memorize this. It is a summary of these first 10 verses, but also it, it turns on this hinge, leaving us in a state of despair. But let's just take it one step at a time. Verse 11a says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything and its time is part of this beautiful plan. God has made everything beautiful in its particular time. But man is stuck. Man is stuck. The verse doesn't end there. That would be wonderful. And I think most of us think it ends there. But the next part of the verse says, and God has set eternity in our hearts. This is where the paradoxes of life fit in. And let me help you understand what that word means when, he, when it says he put eternity into our hearts. As it relates to the first 11 verse, first 10 verses or so of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is what Walter Kaiser, one of the better scholars that uh, commented on this book. This is the definition of eternity in the heart. It is, the que- it is this quest, this deep-seated desire, a compulsive drive... That man, being in the image of God, has to appreciate the beauty of creation, like as aesthetic level, to know character and the meaning of the world on an academic level, and to discern the purpose and the destiny of all things. There is a majesty and a madness to this whole thing. In other words... That man is a natural-born philosopher. He is bred, he was built, he was designed to be inquisitive and not only gather information and learn, but see how it all integrates together and fits as part of a whole. But not only that, because it's eternity in his heart. And so he wants to, all of mankind wants to, and individuals, right, they want to see how the mundane become eternal. They want to see how the particulars become everlasting. They want to see how this day, this event, this tragedy, this bonus is seen in this grand scheme, this beautiful plan. But man is frustrated because, because, the rest of the verse, look at, let's, okay, God has put eternity into his heart, yet, look at the word yet, yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He is made to be a philosopher. He is, a, he is made to compile all the details and make them one cohesive, understandable thing, yet God has not allowed that, so that man will not be able to find out the work of what God is doing from beginning to the end. It is an extravagant production. It is too overwhelming for us to understand. It is a beautiful spectacle, but it is too brilliant for our eyes to experience or our minds to comprehend. That we cannot grasp it. We 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 want to, but we cannot. It it is like if you got the last seat in some. Uh, spectacular blow-up movie like the Avengers, right? And it's IMAX 3D with the chairs that wiggle, and you're on the front row, right? You're too close to see the whole panoramic thing. You're probably too close because you can't see what in the colors that were meant to be. It's this magnificent event, but you're missing it. But you want to see it all. You want to see how it all fits together. So what I'd like to do, I'm going to explain how why that's true, and it's going to feel like a little deviation. This is going to be worth the time because it will help understand the rest of this book. It will help you understand the rest of your life. Why is it that God made us in a way to want to know and to be able to know and to want to comprehend the big, beautiful plan but not give us the ability or the capability to do that? This has to do with the nature or the, right, the makeup of mankind. The, this is anthropology. Grasp this great scholars throughout the centuries have agreed, like Pascal and Reinhold Niebuhr, he's probably one of the more recent ones, and one of the most distant one would be St. Augustine. Uh, a popular writer would be C.S. Lewis and Malcolm Muggeridge. Here's how they describe the nature of man, that he's stuck, that he is caught between two extremes. Just to be memorable, he is caught between an ape and an angel. He is so much more than an ape, but he is, like, he is every bit a mammal but he is so much like an angel because he has a spirit that's internal that will spend eternity with, with after the, his judgment. It will be everlasting, and he is, he is in the image of God. And he is like neither God nor animal. He is all alone in the universe. That's why he feel, we feel like we're in a clown suit. Everybody else is playing their parts. The animals are being animals, and the angels are being angels, and man is both and neither at the same time. He is more like a mouse than a god. He is more like a god than an, a- than, a- than an ape. We have no place. There's no category for us. It's called man. When Reinhold Niebuhr was describing it in his nature of man, in his textbooks, he says, he used this analogy that it is like a giant mast on a ship, right? That's the giant pole that comes up to the middle. And he says, at the deck is where the animals roll, run, and and they run free and crazy. It's the law of the jungle. And at the top, there's a crow's nest, and that is where God and God alone sits, or the angels, let's say the angels. It's the spiritual world, and it's another dimension. And man is in the middle, and there's nothing to hold on to. And he is strapped to this position that God designed him to be, and he just holds on to that because. It is, it is the destruction of man to go up or down. Many a man will slide down because he gets exhausted, and he says, I'll just be like the beast, and whatever comes natural to me, whatever is pleasurable to me, the first two chapters, right, of Ecclesiastes. I will just accumulate information. I will accumulate uh, stuff. I will accumulate pleasures and drink myself into the ground. And, and remember that whole list of things? I'll just collect things. I'll build things. I'll work hard but it leaves me wanting more because there's more to me. The other temptation, of course, is to climb up the mast because I'm growing weary of just holding on to the midpoint and find myself to be like a god where I am constantly in control and I'm accumulating information and I'm writing my own rules. I'm the parent that is helicoptering around my children. I'm a business owner that makes sure everybody salutes At the right time. Our temptations, mind you, listen, our temptations are to slide down or to climb up. Fight or flight is not an animal thing, it is a human thing. We are gonna fight and go to the top and conquer, or we'll just slide down and play our part as a sloth, a sluggard, or a hedonist. Malcolm Muggridge writes it this way If there's no God, if, if God is dead in your life or in the culture, in a country, somebody's going to have to take its place. It will be megalomania, right, or erotomania. A drive to power or a drive to pleasure. A clenched fist or a phallus. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. You see how that works? We are tempted by going to the crow's nest or the deck because both of those are easier to stay put on and they both lead to our destruction. Today, we're talking about the times when we want to climb to the top and know God's plan. God placed eternity into our hearts, and yet we cannot fathom what God is doing from the beginning to the end. Haddon Robinson said, it's like we have a compulsive addiction to crossword puzzles with a very limited vocabulary. And yet we're going to fill in every box. So, how do you live in this place of stuck? How do you live... Well, chapter, the next two verses, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, explain how that happens. But those two verses are expanded and elaborated on because he repeats it throughout the book. In chapter 5, we'll look at that in just a minute. But before we do, um, we, I want you to understand a word so that you'll know the context of it as we read. It's, the, the word is lot, L-O-T. And it, the word is described or defined by uh, a boundary of land. Uh, if you own some real estate, like your lot is where your house is placed on a lot, and those boundaries are legally yours. In the Older Testament, when God gave Israel Canaan, he said, this is your lot. It is your parcel of land. Okay? So it's your place in the world in creation. So that's what he's going to be referring to. He's going to use this word twice. It'd be better if we understood it before we read it. So chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 is going to help us how to live with stuck. This is what I observed to be good. That is to, um, (laughs) I'm so sorry, excuse me. If you're at a certain age, there comes a day when your vision changes (laughs) and it happens that fast. It happens in the morning. It happened this morning. So t- next week, I'll have a larger font. Until then, that's what's happening up here. So. Okay, verse 18. As though, I, as though reading weren't hard enough for me already, right? So verse 18 says, this is what I have observed to be good. That is appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days that they live, that God has given them. The toilsome labor, the toil that you live in life, that's the day in and day out, but anthrop- speaking of anthropology, that is you staying on the mast where you belong. That is not climbing up and being like a god or sliding down and being like an ape, because look what it says after that for this is their lot. Their toilsome labor under the sun is to stay their place, to stay on the mast, to not move outside of their area. That is their lot. That's what I have found to be good. We can eat and we can drink and we can find satisfaction in this toilsome place of ambiguity. Verse 19, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy with their toil, that's a gift from God. That's a gift from God. God will, if so, you want to live in the world of stuck, stuck being you can't climb up and try to control everything, try to manipulate, connive, and rule, make your own right and wrong list, or slide down and say, Who cares? I'm going to just get whatever I want out of life. Do you want to learn how to live in between? He says this while you're living with toil, while you're holding on to that masthead, where you can't put your feet anywhere to rest while you're struggling with your daily, would you acknowledge the joy that God is giving you? And even that is from God. Instead of holding on and whimpering and complaining about what you could be if you rose or what you'd like to be if you just let go, could you just lift your head and enjoy the view? You're a sugar cookie. And I have to tell you why. Enjoy the sugar. There's no complaining in sugar cookies. There's just the acknowledgement that you are to eat and drink and feel the satisfaction that is from God. What does he say? If you have great wealth and possessions, that's from God. But your ability to enjoy it, that's from God too. Know your place. Know your lot. Don't go down and surrender. Don't go up and conquer. Let me try to explain this because we'll move on. We'll see all these applications to this. We'll see six ways that we can apply this in the passage itself. But this might help. Uh, My daughter, uh, her senior year in high school was the lacrosse uh, captain. And they were having a really wonderful year that year. They had lost... The year before, to a team they should have beaten, and so that when they went into her senior year, they would write a word on their bodies with permanent markers that would kind of set the pace for the game. And so, for the first several games, they had the word redeem written on their bodies because they wanted to redeem that previous loss. Now, redeem, if you look in the, bio, in the dictionary, it comes; it's the feminine word for revenge. So that's the way I saw it anyway. I was like... <laughs> redeem oh aren't you cute that's not what you mean that is not what you mean so no dad we are going to redeem that loss yeah okay you call it what you want so anyway that's a distraction but it was a great year I think it might be the single best year they ever had in lacrosse the girls lacrosse at the high school and they ended up going to state the second time in 10 years I think almost 10 years and so no one even remembered going there and so they get to state playoffs they're up in Dallas and so it is a disney story. It, it honestly is just rag public school team, you know, the f- socks don't match and the shoes are tattered and that sort of thing and and they're playing these in the state tournament. It's just all these Dallas teams from exclusive private preparatory schools and they had their own team private buses and and uh, video t- uh, videotaping, you know, teams in themselves and and so right, it's it's overwhelming. They were a severe underdog. So Anyway, it's right before the game starts, and, and Amy uh, pulled the team together and gave her like team captain talk, and she said this. She said, look, um, we are going to play hard. We are going to play hard. This might be our last game, and we're going to have fun. Those three things. And the word they wrote on their bodies, enjoy. And you would not believe what happened. I mean, When they played this Dallas private preparatory school team, they were pummeled. I mean, they absolutely got beat into the ground for the most part. But a couple girls scored, and here's what happened. They played hard. It was their last game, and they had a lot of fun. They enjoyed. They really couldn't control the middle one, but they had a choice in the first and the last. And that's what Solomon's saying. You enjoy what, the lot that God has given you, and your lot is part of this beautiful plan that you will never know and you can never figure out. As one pastor, I think his name is Tommy Nelson, said that if you look carefully at the architectural design of the temple and the tabernacle, you'll notice that there is no suggestion box. <laughs> the beautiful plan is not contingent on your input. And so, whether it makes sense to you or not is irrelevant. And the fact that you're trying to make sense of it is going to be causing you to become insane. Chesterton said, You can get your head into heaven, but you can't get heaven into your head. It will explode. The plan's too big. So, a beautiful plan? That's what we're talking about. But here's the question Really, God? A beautiful plan? Have you seen what I've seen? And now he becomes just an observational philosopher, and he's going to look around, and he's going to say, see, and then he's going to think. He's going to say, have you seen this? I, when I see with my eyes, I don't think there's a beautiful plan. And then I said to myself, wait a minute. I have to stay on the mast. I need to live within my lot. And then... I said to myself. So watch. Six times he's going to look at various things. The reason people love this book is because he's honest. He sees what you and I see, but he talks about it out loud. We get to listen to him having a conversation. The first paradox of life is that he sees, he says, uh, is, has to do with iniquity and justice. Sure. Why not start there? Verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that the place where, just, where there's supposed to be justice, there is wickedness. And where there's a place for righteousness, there is wickedness as well. And what he says is, look, I'm not going to just slide down and give up on justice altogether. Right? I'm just going to forget that. Everybody get what you can. I mean, we're not here long. Right? I'm an American. <laughs> Too bad you were born in another part of the world. I'm going to get as big a house as I possibly can because I can. Right? I'm going to be a monkey. Or, he says, don't daydream about vigilantes. Don't be thinking if you were in charge, justice would rule. Don't be thinking like some people in in our community, right, in the Christian community. When you get involved in social justice, good thing, as though it's up to you. As though you are small g God and you go to bed with the weight of the world on your shoulders because if you don't do it, it won't get done. He says, don't climb to that That crow's nest, don't slide down to that deck. He says this, he says to himself, verse 17, so I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every single deed that there's been done. There's a beautiful plan and God is working on it and justice is part of that. Wicked men are getting away with evil, people say. That's true. They're getting away with murder, yes, And then they meet God. You think Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot are living in some condo with a view? Your soul believes in hell. I don't know if your brain does, but your soul does because it longs for justice. And justice requires a judge. And it's part of a beautiful plan, and it's not for you to execute or even understand. So he goes on to the next one death. What about death? (laughs) I don't get this. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them. Uh, God tests them so that they see that they are just like animals. Surely, the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate waits both of them. As one dies, so, die, so dies the other. All on the same. All of them have the same breath. Humans are of no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and from dust they shall return. There is your graveside line. From dust we came, from dust we shall return. Solomon is saying this. What, what, is the, what about the majesty of God? It has no, the majesty of man. In the image of God, it has no advantage over the animal kingdom. It just gets mowed down like, like the animals do, by plagues or by evil or by laps around the sun. there's no distinction. That's what he sees. And then he says to himself, verse 21, that the breath of the man, it's supposed to be a declarative statement. Many of translations make it a question, but it's supposed to be a statement. That the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast descends downwards into the dust. And I've seen that nothing better, look at this says, and I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy with his activities. Why? Because this is his lot. That he's supposed to just, just stay on the post. Stay right in the middle where it's uncomfortable. Sure, sure, sure. There's a part of you that is very much like an ape, and that part of you, it dies just like an ape dies, and it becomes dirt, and it will plug a hole, as Hamlet would say, right? Your dirt will become a plug for somebody else's wall. But you have a spirit, and that spirit will see God and will live forever. So with that in mind that you are not like God and you are much more than an ape, you need to understand where your lot is. but Look what he says. I have seen nothing is better than the man should just be happy with his activities. You should just be happy where you are. Look up. Look up and look at the view that you have from the mid-mast. Here's how you should pray. Okay? You should pray with, with the acknowledgement that, that there is death certainly coming your way. Are you going to die? Yes. Will you be forgotten? <laughs> Very quickly. So? So, so you, 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 you pray. Have you ever turned your prayers over to a two or three year old? You should consider going back to that. You know, when they pray, they go, dear God, thank you for these mashed potatoes and for the meat and the green beans. I don't like so much, but you know, I'm going to pray anyway, right? I thank you for the sun outside. Look, there's a bird. Thank you for the bird, right? I mean, you, inside you're going, we are never going to eat this meal, but, but that, that child in its, in, in his descriptions of the particular is closer to what what Solomon is talking about here, that God has given that child the enjoyment of the, of, the, of the every times of life. And you should pray, dear God, I am grateful for the earth that I live on, the house that protects me from the elements. I have an air conditioner. I have my own controlled climate. I think, yes, yeah. So, and that's what it means to live in that place. How You're to turn over the ruling of the universe to God and just enjoy, just enjoy. What's the next one? The third uh, paradox is the oppression with, with uh, no com- comfort. There's absolutely no comfort here to these people that are being oppressed unto death. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, so I looked again, she's so he's looking around, and I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and there was no one there to com- comfort them, no hope for them. And on the side of their oppressor, there was great power, but they had no one to comfort them. So these bullies could take victims of, an uh, in, innocent people and destroy their lives, and even the people while being destroyed couldn't even be comforted by someone else. He sees, he makes no sense of that, and watch how he explains it. He doesn't. He does not try to explain anything. He just says, you know, what? maybe it'd be better if they. I'll bet they would say they they wish they'd never been born. And so he says, I, I congratulated the dead who had already gone, right? They had already been dead more than the living who are still living because even because they missed the evil. But better off than both the dead and those that were living are the ones that never existed who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. They've never seen the capacity of of human beings to get when they slide down to the deck and become evil or they get to the top and become uh, megalomaniacs and they do things that the animal kingdom wince over. These people that have never existed have it better because they haven't seen that. He doesn't give an answer. That, that, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying. So, um, here's how it shows up. I'm going to use an example that, that's not attached to anything that we've experienced, but I won't go into details. That's not necessary. But let's just pretend some innocent little child, a, a female, okay, is, is taken and, and is mistreated, and, and there was no one there to comfort her in all of this, unto her death. Taken, mistreated unto her death. And then we have this funeral, and there's this little casket out front. And then you bring, you know, um, drunk Uncle Billy in. And the whole thing, he's been watching it in the news, and it, the whole, it unravels him. And he ends up surrendering his life to God, follows Jesus Christ, turns his life around. And then, and then somebody says this. This happens. Somebody says this. Well, maybe that's why this poor little innocent girl had to go through that suffering because of drunk Uncle Billy. And now he's turned around. That's stupid. That's, that's you trying to make sense out of nonsense, or whoever's saying this line. Look, it, here's, here's the appropriate response. You are a carbon-based biped that has a difficult time spelling sincerely. And you're going to try to make sense out of this. If God wants Uncle Billy to follow him, he could use... A greasy-haired televangelist on a cable station. These two dots are not connected. This is evil. We have no reason for this. It is part of a beautiful story that I cannot know. I'm too close to the screen. My brain is not prepared to handle the glory of this spectacular vision that God is painting. So, I'll call it what it is, it's evil. That's what what Solomon's saying here. Back away, know your lot, stay on the pole, don't ascend and make things up. If it fits in your picture, I don't want to know about it. It's too pale. That's what Solomon's saying. It's okay not to know. rest in God. Making a beautiful plan. Look at verse the fourth, the fourth thing, the paradox of labor and rivalry. We're going to sprint. whoa, we're going to really sprint now. Labor of rivalry. This is basically saying that he it, can we not get along uh, without trying to qu- uh, crush someone else? I have seen the very labor, and, and every skill that is done is a result of rivalry between man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after the win. And so he says, look, why can't we just do good for goodness sake? Why do we have to, like, always have to conquer someone else or be the best at something at the expense of someone else? And he, and he says this, don't just fold your hands. Don't slide down that mast and fold your hands. And say, I'm not even going to try. I hate competition, so I won't compete. Look what it says. He says, he folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. I'll just be a slugger. And then he says, well, look, don't be an 80-hour-a-week guy either. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor striving after the wind. Just live akin. Know your place. Know your place. Loneliness, the fifth thing, chapter 4, verse 8. This is the, this, by the way, this has the most language dedicated to it, and because of that, I want us to make a commitment to this part, okay? Because look what it says in verse 8. He says, there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a brother nor a son, or a son nor a brother, and yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with the riches, and he never asked this question, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and a grievous task. He's looking at the Ebenezer Scrooges in life. He's looking at the people who are spending the night at their work, and they're not even looking around saying, why am I doing this? He's looking at all the lonely people, the Beatles. I look at all the lonely people. It's a depressing song. So here's what he answers. He says this. Now listen to this because it's so important. Our place in the, in the universe is lonely, but we are not to be alone. We have a lot and it's to be occupied with friends. We are to be on a mast hugging other people, other humans <laughs> that are trapped in between. Look what he says of all the advantages, 9 through 12. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. For either, if either one of them falls, one can lift them up as the companion. Woe to the one who falls down and there's not another person to lift them up. Furthermore, there's more. If, if two lie down together, they can keep each other warm. But what about the guy who, who's alone? He, can, he can't get a warm alone. And listen, if one can overpower him who is alone... Two can resist that same person. A cord of three is even better, strands is not quickly torn apart. Friends, friends, most of this church is built around this set of verses that we're looking for people that are transformed by God's grace and can enjoy their place, you know, on the post. And they're connected through relationships. These, these are our vision states. We're connected through relationships for the goodness sake, not just hanging around, so that we can serve the king while he's running his universe that's beautiful in its time. Please do whatever you have to do. End certain things so you can join certain things, so that you could have deep friendships that can mean things that take you to places you can't go. Make it, have it be a person that understands these things, these things about what God's up to. If they're, if they're grumpy and, and again, they're, they're sugar cookies, but they're complaining, you find somebody that understands their place not frustrated in cumadrans okay uh, the sixth thing is popularity and this this one is is briefly is just about how fickle popularity is and so he just kind of he talks about a king who's old and he's famous but boy there's two guys nipping at his heels one is like a prisoner and one of them is a poor kid up verse 13 and 14 say a poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction for he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in this kingdom here's what that means in a phrase Have you uh, ever heard the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king? Anybody heard that phrase? The king is dead, long live the king. Okay, probably for 35 years I didn't understand what that meant. The king is dead, long live the king. i watched these movies. The king is dead, long live the king. Wait, are we talking about the same person? No. Wow. The reason is because I didn't understand this book. I hadn't lived long enough. And it says, my, people are fickle. The king is dead! Wow! So long live the king! Well, that was a very short grieving process, wasn't it? The king is dead. I'm not even sure it's one. You know, two sentences. The king is dead. Hash. You know, just a, just dash. Long live the next king. We are moving on here. King Henry the fourth. We're on the fourth. Woo! Your 15 minutes of fame. Well, it's over. Missed it. That's all. He. It's just. Here's here's what he's saying. He's looking at six of these things. He's saying, guys, love God. Keep his commandments. That's how to make sense out of all of this. Know your place as an obedient follower of the one who makes the rules and is painting this beautiful picture. Don't make it too difficult. Just do what the king says. There's no whining as being a sugar cookie. If you, if you spend too much time contemplating that, you'll miss the moment. Do you know how you survive being a sugar cookie? You realize that there are only, out of four billion people on the planet, there's only a handful that get to be on that beach covered in sand, and you're one of them. You get to understand your place in the world is to be hazed by a drill instructor that's trying to make you what you want to become. It's it's not fixating on all the bigger picture. It's understanding that you could be a Navy SEAL. In our world, it is I get to be part of this beautiful, panoramic, splendid, extravagant picture that God is making. I will play my part inside my lot on my post, and I will enjoy it. And that joy, that joy, itself will be a gift from God. That's true. That's why it's in the Bible. Lord Jesus, help us not, when we are cynical and embittered, Lord, help us understand that we have tried to rule our little universe and our little G God isn't working anymore. Lord, let us not be gluttons where we just give up and just, surrender trying anymore and we're just going to get whatever we can get or let us be who you made us to be more than an ape and less than an angel and we would play our part and be joy-filled as we eat and we drink and we see your splendid blessings in suffering in sorrow in evil in in, in, in blessings that we would see our place play our part and give you joy we pray this in Jesus name amen